With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Welcome to Top 5, a show where we count things down from number 5 all the way to number 1. And this week, the Top 5 cult movies. Our Top 5 cult movies. Now, what is a cult movie, you ask? I remember I dated a person at one point, and she was like, oh, why would you want to watch movies about devil worshipping and stuff? And I was like, no. (laughs) A cult movie is one that did poorly in the box office or had generally uh, low uh, uh, review ratings. But has since, since it left the box office, gained quite a following, almost like a cult. So, this week on the show, top five cult movies. Oh, man, and I did occult movies, too. I'm going to have to cross all these off. Matthew, what do you have for number five? My number five is actually a movie that, when I tell people I enjoy it, I get a lot of, what? Because not only is it a cult movie, it's a cult movie based on a cult book. And the book is um, evil, for lack of a better word. Brett Easton Ellis's American Psycho, which is my number five, is a book that got a lot of attention because the main character, Patrick Bateman, is a true psychopath. And the book has a lot of really graphic, horrible you know, bloody murders, but it also has just this terrifying sort of underbelly of the 80s yuppie mindset. And, you know, there's terrible misogyny. There are things in the book that thankfully don't make it to the film, but what does make it to the film is really unsettling. Uh, And it stars, um, oh gosh, what's his name? Christian Bale, uh, Patrick Batman. But Christian Bale... If you've seen him in anything, you know he fully commits to every role. And so throughout this film, you really only see two expressions on Christian Bale's face. One is paranoia, that people don't like him. And the other is out-and-out rage. Everything else, he just has this pleasant, placid mask. And, you know, there are characters in this that only appear for a scene or two who completely take over everything. Uh, Of course, you know... um, the Green Goblin, whose name always escapes me, Willem Dafoe is in it for two scenes. And almost everyone in this movie is somebody that you know or enjoy, somebody that you can say, hey, I know that actress and I know what they do. But I think probably the best part about the film is a scene uh, with Jared Leto, 
wherein Jared Leto is killed with an axe. Um, and I'm not saying I've always wanted to do that. I've always wanted to see that. I'm just saying that it is really satisfying from the main character's point of view when Jared Leto gets killed with an axe. And I feel like it's not necessarily wrong to look at that and go, yeah, okay. If you haven't seen it, um, be aware it is, it's not something that you're just going to want to walk into cold. And if you do have, you know, some issues with really, really strong misogynistic, uh, points of view with murder with little tinges of racism and just general unpleasantness. I wouldn't recommend it, but it's actually directed by Mary Heron, who uh, also did, I shot Andy Warhol and did that Betty page movie from 15 odd years ago as well. So it's actually really well shot. If you do get a chance and you know, you've you're stealing yourself, maybe have a couple of, you know, drinks beforehand or whatever it is you need to do. I recommend American psycho, to the right people. Uh, if you hear this and you think I'm a terrible person, I'm sorry. What are you going to do? The rest of my list is much, much less horrific. So, All right. Uh, so the only one on my list, well, actually, I think there's two movies on my list that actually made money in their initial run. And uh, my number five is 2009's Push, uh, the greatest X-Men movie that you have never seen. Uh, it had a $38 million budget, uh, uh, but it made $48 million globally. So it made more than the budget that has cost. Um, the I've talked about this movie a billion times, but the the premise of push is what if mutants exist and what if the government was tracking different types of, of uh, mutants down and exposing them to government research so that they could try and invent some kind of a formula that they could inject into non-mutants to give them mutant powers, forcing all of the not the, the entire worlds, but a lot of people to uh, move to Taiwan and stay out of all government's hair because the uh, Taiwan government. Sorry, China, but the Taiwan government uh, doesn't really care, lets people do what they want to do. And of course, we get our American hero played by Captain America, who is. Uh, he, he has the ability to push, he has telekinetic powers and he gets wrapped up in a scheme to, uh, save an ex-girlfriend, save a little girl. And it turns into a giant, uh, heist film, uh, full of mutants, full of, uh, superheroes that have been in every single other <laughs> Marvel movie. Just about every actor in, in the, uh, in push has been, uh, in another Marvel movie, but I adore this movie top to bottom. I will sit down and watch it on a whim just because it's a lot of fun. And again, it's it's literally the best X-Men movie that has ever been released. It is Push from 2009. Matthew, what do you have for your number four? Now, I want to make it clear I am not going to make fun of Steven because every single remaining movie on my list I have also talked about a million times. My number four actually keeps getting lower and lower uh, every time we run into something where it applies. I think the last place that it came up I was like, ah, it's kind of embarrassing. But now I feel like 1981's heavy metal is very embarrassing. But it is definitely a cult film in that it hit the box office. It rolled off the end of the pier. I think it made like, it made $20 million on a $9 million budget in 1981. So it wasn't like a, a complete, you know, meltdown. It wasn't, you know... I don't know. It sounds Starbucks. like it doubled its budget. So that's good. Well, yeah. But then you also have to take into account the fact that 
once it was out, people started talking about it. And there was a time when we were young, which would have been, you know, the mid 1980s, when you could literally order it on Super 8 film from the back of magazines and you could get it. I remember in college renting um, the videotape. And of course, it cost me $65 because that videotape was totally lost. It just, I mean, disappeared. I, I, I don't know what happened. And I paid that $65, you know, not particularly happily. But the thing about the movie Heavy Metal that is so compelling, once you set aside all of the things about it that are very juvenile, very prurient, uh, very puerile, let's just throw all the words in there, is a really entertaining anthology series of sort of kind of adventure stories. The least successful story in the entire film is still pretty okay. And, uh, you know, for my money, that's Den. But if, you know, you watch it, I'm sure you have your own idea of what is the least successful movie. And I do quote this one very often. Not as often as my number one, but I do quote this movie relatively often. And if you have seen it, uh, first of all, if you've seen it on cable, you haven't seen it because they literally chop 27 minutes out of a 67-minute film to air it on TBS. It's, it's just heartbreaking. It's terrible. But if you have seen it, you probably agree with me that, A, it's embarrassing, but B, when you get to the end and you get to that last segment and you have all the orchestral, the soaring noises and, you know, the big heroic sacrifice, I think you will feel the same thing that I feel. I still, with one exception, I have gotten goosebumps every time I've watched this movie. And the one exception was recently I downloaded a version from Amazon Prime purchased it and they had made changes to the soundtrack they made changes to the music they made changes to the mix they made changes to the voices so there's one character who is just basically john candy talking like this they added a filter to make his voice sound all deeper oh i was mad i was i was hot well the good thing is you still have that one vhs copy that you paid 65 bucks for well yeah but even i don't have a working vhs machine right now but yes, if, if you've never seen Heavy Metal, I do recommend it with the caveat. Um, if you're a, a, a male from the ages of about 18 to about the ages of 27, you definitely won't be paying attention to the right things, but I do recommend it. Once again, I feel like it is a movie that certain parts of it, a lot of it has not aged well, specifically some of the you know stereotypical female characters, but... I think that as a cult film goes, it's one of my favorites. So I definitely had to mention it. All right. Uh, My number four actually made money in the box office, although it was panned again by reviewers. And I didn't really get to see it until it hit uh, HBO sometime in the um, (laughs) well, actually not too far after its release, probably when it first hit uh, HBO. My friend Mike and I sat down and watched it and we just fell in love with it from the very beginning. It's They Live from John Carpenter. Now, this is a sci-fi movie about, um, really, today, a very kind of uh, high recession, unemployment, run amok, people living in, in uh, you know, homeless camps all around the U.S. And our main character, Nada, who comes to Los Angeles to look for a job, and he does a construction. He's played by Roddy Piper. And through the process, he uncovers 
uh, this plot that the government of the world and the rich people of the world are working with aliens. And there is an underground movement uh, resistance trying to let everyone know that uh, they are being hypnotized. They are being uh, subliminally influenced by these aliens and they walk among us. They live. And the only way that you can uh, suss out who is the alien and who isn't is by wearing these sunglasses or later contacts. They update the uh, the technology to to contacts. And that's where you get to see the world in black and white. And everybody looks disgusting. Now, this movie uh, also stars Keith David. This movie is so much fun just because it is. I don't know whether John Carpenter is trying to play it as a horror comedy or a thriller comedy, but the comedy bits really kind of work well in this, either from the one liners from Roddy Piper or the over the top fight scenes and violence that are thrown in throughout. But it is a very nihilistic uh, one man against the universe kind of story uh, to uncover the plot. And will he succeed or will he fail? Well, if you haven't seen They Live by now, you should go and take some time and watch They Live. My number four on the top five cult movies. That is a good one. Yeah, it's, it's um, really good. My uh, child has been into South Park lately, and recently we saw the episode where uh, two characters literally had a scene-by-scene, uh, basically, fight that was uh, a reference to the Roddy Piper-Keith David fight in They Live. And I just laughed and laughed, and they had no idea what I was talking about. Yeah, you should make them watch uh, They Live. It's really good. It may uh, sure. uh, open their eyes to to what's going on around us. Uh, so there you I go. I would actually, I there has been talk. They'll probably say they don't care and punch me in the face. Well, that's a good, good child. Uh, here's the thing. I, I think they live could be remade today and mm-hmm. be just as effective. Uh, only this time, you know, your rebel groups wouldn't be coming to you through, you know, a TV signal. They would have uh deep dark web presences or they would be coming at you through podcast. You know, they would be encoding something in podcasts that people would be listening to. But I think this whole see the truth when you have your earbuds in. Yeah. I, I think that the whole, no, no, you put your, your, your AR goggles on or something like that. You could run off the same, the same premise, but I think this whole idea of uh, everyone is asleep at the wheel and don't see how they're being subtly manipulated uh, it turns out it's all aliens. I think that premise still would hold up very much today. And so I would like to see uh, see what could happen with a They Live remake. I'm not saying it would be better than the original because the original is very much a product of 1988. Uh, yeah. For some reason, I always thought this came out in 1984, you know, uh, right at the height of of the Reagan administration. But no, it came out right at the uh, at the end of the Reagan administration. Yeah, it has some crazy Terminator vibes, but. Eh, maybe a little bit, but uh, yeah, definitely, definitely go and check it out, everybody. All right. I think that if you're remaking it today, there can't be aliens. It just has to be like some jerk. Um, hey, and speaking of Joe Rogan, my number three mm-hmm. is in no way related to Joe Rogan. I just wanted that cheap shot. And I feel I feel good about that joke. I do. I, I, uh, I wouldn't. I, I, I wouldn't feel good about that if I were you. My number three, though, I remember the very first time I saw it. It was after our first year in college and it was the year that i went home after my first semester and spent the summer of 1989 in beloit kansas and there's two things to do in beloit kansas and since i at the time didn't drink uh that was not really fun for me so i watched hbo and i remember seeing heathers 
for the first time, uh, directed by Michael Lehman, written by Daniel Waters, who I don't know if he's related to John Waters, but Heather's is, for me, one of the seminal, the quintessential Generation X stories. Basically, it's about a group of mean girls, Heather, 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 and Veronica, who run the school through their evil shenanigans and are seniors, but a new kid shows up, played by Christian Slater, at the height of his powers. If you've ever said to yourself, what did anybody ever like about Christian Slater? Uh, it's his Jack Nicholson impersonation, which is a full display throughout the movie Heathers. But as the movie breaks down, and actually everything breaks down, but as the movie kind of uh, continues, Veronica and JD start a relationship and that relationship turns into something really weird. And then they start murdering people, but in their defense, it wasn't intentional the first time. And so uh, the movie gets really, really dark. There is a scene where Veronica uh, has been framed and everybody thinks she's going to kill herself. And the teacher comes up and says, you know, deciding whether or not to kill yourself, maybe the most important, important decision you'll ever make and veronica is just kind of staring at her and saying get a job uh which of course again generation x we don't always have the best comebacks but we do have them um if you again have issues with weird creepy violence uh played for humorous effect this is not the movie for you however if you have a a black soul and a dark sense of humor and you know, we're born between 1965 and about 1980 or 81. I don't remember what it is. You will probably already remember this film. Uh, if not, I do recommend checking it out because it is truly funny while also being horrifying and having bits and pieces in it that I think about my own teenage child and go, my God, how could I have ever even... Ugh, but, you know, that's just hindsight. And they say hindsight is 2020 and it's already 2023. So my number three is Heather's from 1989. Check it out. My number three is a film disaster in that it didn't even make close to its twenty five million dollar budget. Oh, gosh. Also, a John Carpenter movie. Uh, after this one came out, John Carpenter was like, yeah, I think I want to go back to independent films, which led us to They Live in 88. This is 1986's Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> uh, this is a fantastic action movie in the veins of a, uh, well, it's an 80s movie. So it it's very much an 80s take on what Kung Fu cinema uh, would be. It has Kurt Russell as your white protagonist who gets drawn into a kidnapping plot uh, uh, of of his best friend's um, fiance, and going into the mystical side of uh, the little China part of San Francisco, and dealing with uh, Lo Pan, played by James Hong, uh, who wants to become an immortal god because uh, he is an ancient sorcerer. So there's magic, there's uh, mystery, there's action, there's comedy. I mean, it is almost a screwball comedy in some of the stuff that uh, Kurt Russell does in this movie. I really enjoy it. It doesn't really stand up as much today as uh, as it, it used to, although it still is very strong. Um, mm -hmm. But it, it does at times tend to lean a little bit, a little bit. Um, not, I don't want to say racist because it it's not it, it doesn't do that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't go completely into it, but it's maybe a little bit insensitive at times or maybe 
uh, uh, here's the, here it is. It fetishizes bits of the Asian culture uh, yes. that uh, probably today feels a little played out. Um, yes. And that's probably its biggest criticism. But the way that it's lit, the way that it's shot, the action sequences, I think, are really, really uh, clever and well done. Uh, I think it's just it's it's a really fun movie. And certainly a lot of people have uh, embraced it since it came out on HBO or in, in uh, home video uh, back in 88, 89. Big Trouble in Little China is my number three. Yep. That All right. A great movie. Before we get into our top two, I want to remind everybody that we have a way for you to sh- support our show and everything that we do here at Major Spoilers Entertainment. Uh, if you are not already a patron, then you need to listen. If you are a patron, thank you so much. You are an awesome person. All right. Now, the rest of you, this is your chance to become an awesome person. All you need to do is go to patreon.com slash major spoilers and become uh, a member. Sign up for the the silver level membership five bucks a month to keep this show going, uh, to make sure that we can keep people employed at Major Spoilers, to make sure that some of your other favorite Major Spoilers content, whether they be podcasts or articles or whatever, do not go away. Only takes a couple of minutes to sign up. You get access to a bunch of bonus content. You can find out more. Sign up today, patreon.com slash Major Spoilers. All right, we are into our top two. And Matthew, what do you have for your number two? It was always interesting to me in college uh, that at a certain point, some of my favorite movies all started with the letters H-E-A. Uh, we mentioned Heathers, of course. We mentioned Heavy Metal. My number two is a movie that answers the question, what do you do when you're on the very top of the teeny bopper pop charts? And the answer is you commit commercial suicide. That movie is 1968's Eight's Head. Uh, the one live action like film movie thing made by the monkeys uh, written and produced by Jack Nicholson. Uh, and of course, Bob Rafelson and um, Bert Fubla What is his name? Bert Schneider, the guys behind five easy pieces, which was partially financed by this movie actually. Um, but it is the movie of the monkeys and sort of their experiences with becoming famous in 1966. And it starts with all four members of the band throwing themselves off a bridge. And then, of course, we go through a number of scenes, and it's very impressionistic. It's not something that you're going to look at it and say there's really a story. It definitely takes from, you know, uh, those early Beatles films. I think A Hard Day's Night is just like, hey, wacky fun adventure romp. This is like that, except it has that Jack Nicholson bleakness at the heart of it. There's a point in there where you just kind of feel like, wow, was this the same people behind Chinatown? Turns out maybe it was. Um, There's also a really notorious bit where the uh, band is playing a concert and it's interspersed with cartoons. And then all of a sudden footage from the Vietnam War, including, you know, the scene of someone being executed on network television. And I'm just like, okay, uh, this is definitely not what I expected. First time I saw this, I was 16 or 17. My friend Josh had managed to track down a copy because at the time, you know, the monkeys were having a huge resurgence on MTV. But as I've aged 86 minutes worth of film have aged very, very well. And even if you don't know anything about the monkeys, uh, first of all, shame on you. But second of all, 
I feel like this movie has important things to say about a lot of the things in modern culture. And in a lot of ways, it presages, you know, the whole, uh, as I've said, once you're famous in the modern world, you're famous forever. That was not true in 1968. Now we're like, hey, remember that guy who played the third guy on that episode of ER with George Clooney? He now has his own show. But at this point in time, you didn't have that. So you're watching this film and going, why is Frank Zappa here? Is that the Tony Basil from uh, the uh, Hey Mickey song? Yes, it is. And as the movie ends, you actually find some really, really lovely messing with the form and messing with the story. And there may possibly be a time loop. I'm not entirely sure. Honestly, I've seen this movie a hundred times. And every time I've seen it, I see something new. And the only thing that I can say to you is the words that uh, Peter Tork says, which is, I know nothing. But I do know this. If you get a chance to watch this film, A, you're probably a friend of mine. And B, definitely take it. All right. Um, I said that all the rest of the movies on my list were box office failures. My number two is not a box office failure, although it was had very mixed reviews and really didn't become the success that it is today until it reached the uh, video release. I think the first time I got to see it was on DVD uh, back in 95, 96, somewhere around there, probably 96, 97, to be honest. Uh, this is the third installment in Sam Raimi's Evil Dead series. Uh, he had Evil Dead, then Evil Dead 2, which was basically a remake of Evil Dead 1, of the first Evil Dead. Uh, but then by the time we get around to Army of Darkness, the third film in the in the series, he sends young Ash Williams all the way back into medieval times, not the uh, entertainment uh, food place, but uh, the ancient times where he gets to fight uh, deadites and all sorts of other things and give very quippy one-liners and really have a lot of fun throughout the piece. Uh, Army of Darkness uh, had an $11 million budget. It made $21 million globally. So that's that's the good thing. Uh, my friend Dave, when I lived in California, probably about once a month or so, he would have all of his friends over and he would uh, put up Army of Darkness and Starship Troopers uh, back to back. We would always watch the exact same films over and over again. Uh, and then uh, drink a lot and then just scream all the lines to the uh, to both of the, the movies while we were watching it. Uh, I remember quite distinctly one of the times we decided to watch the re-release, the director's cut version of Army of Darkness that has an alternate ending where Ash drinks too many drops of the liquid and winds up uh, in the far future. And you never get the the smart ending that you saw in the original. I just remember we were so bummed out that everybody's mm -hmm. like, yeah, I don't think we have time for starship troopers or we're not in the mood for starship troopers tonight. I guess we'll all, I'll just go home and, and sleep this horrible memory off. If you get a chance to watch army of darkness, watch the original version. Uh, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of, he took too much of the potion and wound up in the future. Although for the extended continuation of the army of darkness, uh, Ashley Williams, story well it doesn't even work there because the army of darkness television series goes back to the original ending and not the the alternate ending but if you've read any of the comic books uh where ash is in the future and then gets thrown back in time back and forth um i guess it allows that to continue but really by the time he gets back to quote unquote the present 
and he's fighting dead deadites in the uh, S Mart. That's that's pretty good stuff. But uh, over the top, this is Sam Raimi. Uh, this I don't think this is the grossest violence that he has had in any of his films. I think Evil Dead Two probably went a little bit further. This one really plays up the hamminess of Bruce Campbell and his ability to just have fun with whatever ridiculousness that Sam Raimi is throwing at him. So uh, if you get a chance, if you've never seen Army of Darkness and you want a quote unquote fun zombie movie, then then this is the one to watch. 1992's Army of Darkness, Sam Raimi, Bruce Campbell, uh, Ivan uh, uh, Raimi also co-wrote this. Uh, I, I forget who uh, Elizabeth uh, Davids, I want to say, is her name. Uh, she plays the the uh, love interest in the story. Good stuff. All right. We have reached the top of our lists to our number ones. Matthew, what do you have for your number one movie? Well, anyone who knows me knows what my number one is. You probably will not be surprised yourself. And I'm sure you're thinking right now, Matthew, are you going to say Real Genius again? And of course, Matthew's going to say Real Genius again. Uh, 1985, Val Kilmer, I think his second film after Top Secret and right before Top Gun, which is an amazing three-year swing, by the way. To go from I have no job to top secret to real genius to top gun. You have to say to yourself, wow, Val, nice, nice. Now, again, when it comes to cult movie, I'm like, hey, you know, did anybody talk about this movie in 1984 when I was a kid? They really didn't. Um, I remember seeing it. I remember seeing it on cable, but I didn't really latch onto it for a couple of years. And I think part of the reason is because of the fact that it is set in a university. It's set in a fictionalized version of Caltech. And there's sort of a a mindset in it where you're kind of like, oh, yeah, you kind of do have to be college or above to kind of grasp some of this. But more importantly, it's a movie that actually gives you wacky fun, kind of like what you got from, say, Revenge of the Nerds, but without all the sexual assault. And with a little more heart, I feel, and also with some science that's relatively close. I mean, I'm not saying it's scientifically accurate, but it's certainly more so than most movies of the era and really deals with how not to be a jerk in the world. Um, you know, I, I have often said that sometimes I am embarrassed of the fact when I was a kid, I would walk into every room assuming I was the smartest person there. But this is the story of characters for who this is literally true. And so as you go through this film, it's filled with these cool moments where a smart person says or does something awesome. Or, you know, Chris makes the coolest remark. Um, Honestly, if I go a day without quoting real genius, it just means you don't know that I'm quoting real genius. Honestly, the last time through it, uh, my child, who is 19, and I watched it, and they realized that there's a line in that film that I quote all the time that they'd never caught before. And when they pointed this out, I went, Oh, is that, is that from this movie? Turns out it was. So, you know, if you ever want to see a five megawatt laser fire, even once you need to see this film It is a moral imperative. All right, there you go. That is Matthew's number one, which brings me to my number one. This is one that never heard anything about. Uh, until one summer evening between my um, uh, eighth grade year in middle school and my freshman year in high school, uh, 
uh, he came, or actually, hmm, must have come, oh, maybe it was w- when I was between freshmen. No, it couldn't have been. It must have come out when I was still in, in middle school. Um, and then I, I saw it that summer before going to, to high school. Uh, my dad came home and he was always in the habit of, of stopping by the local video rental place and just grabbing a bunch of movies, grabbing some stuff that he wanted to watch, and then occasionally grabbing something that I might want to enjoy as well. And he came home and he goes, here's this really weird movie. You might enjoy it. It looks like it's like comic books and space people. Uh, here you go. And he gave it to me and it was called The Adventures of Buckaroo Bonsai Across the Eighth Dimension. <laughs> and I was like, I have no idea what this is about. I've never seen this thing. And I sat down and watched it. And it was this posit that what if in 1938 aliens from uh, the planet Lectroid uh, came through the eighth dimension into our world and started inhabiting everybody uh, and, and taking over, trying to take over the world and trying to open up a bigger portal to let the rest of these black Lectroids through. And, uh, you know, the plan kind of was put on hold because um uh, John Lithgow, who plays uh, Lord Warfin, uh, got locked up into an insane asylum. Uh, and it wasn't until uh, uh, Buckaroo Banzai uh, comes around and he starts reinvestigating this research and opens up, drives through a mountain with his car, opens up a barrier. And then suddenly everyone wants his oscillation overthruster. So the black electroids could not only take over this planet, but go home and take over their home planet as well. This is an insane movie in that not only is Buckaroo Banzai a, a brilliant physicist, uh, he uh, is also a neurosurgeon. He speaks multiple languages. He knows martial arts. Uh, he is a, a physicist, if I didn't mention that. Uh, he also plays uh, trumpet in a his own rock and roll band with his hardcore Cavaliers, his Hong Kong Cavaliers. Uh, it is it is the 1980s take on what Doc Savage could have been had they not screwed up the Doc Savage movie back in the, the 1970s. But if you were to take Doc Savage as a pulp hero and put him in 1980s weirdness, especially as you start to get into the new wave movement, that is what Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension is. It is great. It has got everybody in it. That's the crazy thing about this. It's got mm-hmm. Peter Weller. I don't know if this was. Uh, his first appearance, I want to say it's not, but it's got Peter Weller in it. It's got Ellen Barkin, John Lithgow, Jeff Goldblum, Christopher Lloyd, uh, Rosalind Cash, Clancy Brown, uh, Robert Ito. Um, let's see who else is in that. That uh, Carl Lumley is in it. Uh, it just has a who's who of people that would later go on to do really, really, really big things. And then for this movie to do so poorly, probably because people didn't understand that it was supposed to be a comedy. They were like, is this supposed to be a comedy or a space thing or a horror thing? Mm-hmm. We don't get it. It only made $6 million globally on a $17 million budget. Uh, so it didn't even double that. But today, if you ask people, most people have seen this movie uh, when it came out on VHS or DVD or, you know, in the myriad of different places that it has popped up. Definitely a cult classic and it mm-hmm. hits the number one spot of my top five cult movies. So there you go, ladies and gentlemen, a bunch of cult movies that you probably already knew. Uh, but uh, I'm curious as to what your thoughts are, what your top five cult movies are. Um, don't shout them out now because I can't hear you. This is a recording. <laughs> so I can't I, I can't uh, hear what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, the great NATO. You can sh- 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 just hold on. Hold on. I need you to go over to the Major Spoilers Discord server 
and I need you to jump into the top five channel. It's under the shows and streams category. You can jump into the top five uh, channel and you can share your top five cult movies. It's completely free to join our Discord. It doesn't cost you anything to get in, though. If you are one of those patrons that I mentioned earlier, there are secret channels that you have access to. But jump into the free top five channel. Share your top five cult movies. Other people will also share their top five cult movies. Respond to yours. You can respond to theirs. Why? Because everybody loves a list, and we will talk with you soon. This podcast is copyright 2023 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC.